Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of the IMT in Britain. To kick things off this week, we've got a talk given by Alan Woods at the opening session of the recent Revolution Festival on the topic of why we are communists. In this talk, Alan covers the unprecedented crisis of capitalism, the bankruptcy of reformism, as well as the growing radicalization of young people who are turning towards communist ideas. Without wasting any time, let's get started with this week's first episode on Marxist Voice, the podcast of the IMT in Britain. So the subject is what? Why we are communists? Well, the first question is, are you communists? Well... Pardon, I didn't hear you. I think I heard something. Are you communists? That's better. Now, where shall we start? Where can we start on this very interesting and broad subject? Pass me a note every 10 minutes. Going up 10, 20, 30, 40, up to 60, okay? (laughs) And I can count too many. Do you like stories? So do I, so do I. If you like stories, fairy stories in particular, then you should definitely uh, tune into the BBC. Uh, Known by its friends as the the, the British Bullshitting Corporation. Okay, yes, they're specialists in telling stories, tall stories, fairy stories, and they have a special program which is suitable for all audiences, all ages, especially the very young members who don't understand very much. It's called the Six O'Clock News. <laughs> I strongly recommend it. Don't miss it. Recommend it to your friends. Of course, a pack of lies from start to finish. Sometimes I just scratch my head when I listen to this stuff which they, which they say. Anyway, let's leave that to one side. Because I'm now going to tell you a true story. Once upon a time, it wasn't long ago actually, but there we are. You've got to start stories like that. Once upon a time, there was a young chap from Italy, from Rome. Okay? And this young gentleman from Rome, he went on a holiday to Paris. When he was in Paris, he saw, to his astonishment, on all the walls of the metro station, stickers saying, Are you a communist? He didn't quite believe it, so he scratched his head. He continued on his holiday. But when he went back to Rome and looked around on all the bus stations and and metro stations with the same poster, are you a communist? He therefore said, hey, these people are serious. I'm going to join, which he did. That's the story. (laughs) Now then, now then, how many of you have seen our stickers? Are you coming? Put your hand up. Oh, there we are. Good. So we're not doing too badly then. So you've all seen it anyway. You're not the only ones. This campaign, comrades and friends, is having an absolutely astonishing effect. I've been around for quite some time, quite some years, many years, more than I care to recite. But I can tell you what, I've seen good situations, I've seen bad situations, I've seen difficult situations, but I have never in my life seen anything remotely resembling what I've seen in the last few months. When we started this campaign, by the way, it was Comrade Ben Glenetsky who had the idea. I hate him, you know, I should have have thought of that. It was Ben's idea. Give him a clap, for goodness sake. And... And you have just seen, you've just seen in these marvelous clips, these videos, very short videos, but I thought very effective videos, of comrades from all different countries, all different continents. And all of the, all of our sections now are going f- forward at a fast rate. Extraordinary. You heard what the comrades from Canada said. They've increased their membership by 50%. It's up to, up to over 600 now in, in Canada. And of course, if, if, if there's any country in the world, they would twist my arm and say, which is the country least liable to have a socialist revolution? I think Canada would be fairly high on the list. With no disrespect to our Canadian comrades. On the contrary, this makes their success even more pleasing to me and more satisfying. And what it proves, by the way, you see, I'm a bit tired of it. I feel 
So often I've heard this ridiculous expression, you know. Oh, we can't grow because the objective conditions are not favorable. You know, I never accepted that. And I know what, what unfavorable conditions are. I know very well what they are. But I've never been in a position where you couldn't grow. You can always grow. The only difference between growing faster or growing slower with greater or lesser difficulties. But this kind of growth is it's tremendous. Really speaking, you know, we, we are very self-critical, aren't we? And I'm the most critical of the lot. But, you, you know, sometimes when we, when we get something right, we should really shout it from the rooftops, you know. And we shouldn't be ashamed to, to praise the work that we've done where we've done something right. And this is very right. It's really connecting. Now, this is important. This is important. Our successes, by the way, which are considerable, are noted by our friends, who naturally are very pleased. They're also noted by our enemies, who, for reasons best known to themselves, are perhaps not so pleased. You know, but the thing about our enemies is they, 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 they don't really displease. Their, dis, their displeasure is enormously increased by the fact they can't understand it. They can't. Well, all of a sudden, these guys from the IMT, they're coming from nowhere, and they, they're doing this campaign, and they're actually building. And everybody knows you can't build because the situation is unfavorable, isn't it? You know. Now, this enormous confusion extends right across the so-called left. How I hate that expression. You know, Goering once said, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. And when I hear the word left lately, well, I don't possess a revolver, but if I did, I think I would reach for it, you know. The left, what left? Where, what left? You tell me where the left is. I can't, I can't see it for the life of me. And the left is in disarray, total disarray. At this precise moment, my friends, when the capitalist system, I mean, a child of six could understand this, for goodness sake. Precisely at the moment in history where the capitalist system is in its deepest crisis, probably in 300 years. You look at anywhere in the world, you look at the whole damn thing from top to bottom. Economic crisis, financial crisis, monetary crisis, political crisis, diplomatic crisis. Look at the Middle East. If it wasn't so terribly tragic, which it is, you know, you could even laugh at the comic spectacle of Mr. Blinken. I think there's an English pop poem, isn't it, for kids? Winking, blinking, and nod. He's one of those. Blinking. He's a blinking fool. Yeah, this man. I mean, for goodness. By the way, you can see the, the, the depth of the capitalist crisis reflected in the absolute incompetence, stupidity, blockheaded short-sightedness of all their political representatives. You know, I mean, take Britain. And everyone says, no, you take Britain. Take Britain. We're having a, <laughs> tomorrow, if you didn't know, the foreign commerce wouldn't know this. We're having a special day. It's Armistice Day. You know, it's the anniversary of the, the, the armistice in the second, which ended the Second World War, where millions of millions of workers in uniform were, were slaughtered. And it's a day in which all these damned hypocrites of the ruling class, all the ladies and gentlemen. All the political class, all the, the, the heads of the clergy, the bankers, the capitalists, the whole gang of them, don their finest suits and finery and fur coats. That's the only reason they turn up. In front of the cenotaph, the tomb of the unknown soldier, where they pretend, it is sheer pretend, they pretend to weep tears about the fate of some unfortunate soldier, some unfortunate young kid that was killed for no good reason over a hundred years ago. And these, seem, these same damned hypocrites are quite prepared to support actively the slaughter of men, women, and children by the thousands in Gaza, which we see at the present time. Not only that, not only that's bad enough. But these same gangsters, these same Democrats, you know we live in a, in a democracy, Ben? Did you know that? You noticed it? Or as Ted Grant used to call it, my great friend, leader, and teacher, he didn't call it a democracy, he said, a democracy. That's about right. We live in a democracy. You know, this democracy, these great Democrats, 
are striving to silence, and it, not just in Britain, in Austria, in Germany, in France, in France, they're, they're charging, I don't know, how much is it, 150 euros? Anyone that dares to go on a demonstration in France, in democratic France? In this country, they're trying to ban the demonstration, the mass demonstration. These are probably the biggest demonstrations that I can remember in Britain. Probably half a million. And they're aiming for a million. They probably will get a million. It's absolutely uh, astonishing the way that things are. What are you doing, Ben? I'm just moving the microphone. Moving the microphone, why? <laughs> oh, I hate this modern technology. Anyway, can you hear me okay? Okay. <laughs> I, I must believe you. You know, that, that all these countries are clamping down on and democracy in Britain. They're trying to ban the, the monster demonstration, which, is, which, which will take place tomorrow in spite of them. And we've got this creature as our Home Secretary, Minister of the Interior, I think you'd call it in other countries. It sounds better. What's her name? He has Siwella, sounds like Sewer, doesn't it? Siwella Braveman or Braverman or whatever her name is, you know, who is demanding that they ban this demonstration because it causes distress, you see, among sections of the population, like her, for instance. Okay. Now, some sections, some unkind people, described Ms. Braveman. Oh, by the way, isn't it great to have a woman uh, minister? Doesn't it make all the difference? You know, if you listen to the feminists and people, the identity politics got this. Well, she, she's, she's not just a female, she's a female of color. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And she's a person of, on the extreme right, extreme, extreme right, who seems to take a delight in putting forward racist, openly racist, anti-immigrant and all kinds of, uh, of stuff. For example, sending the immigrants on a plane to Rwanda, for example, and so on. And this person, uh, some people have unkindly described her as right-wing. Now, I beg to differ. Yeah, I think that's very unkind. It's not even particularly precise. If I were to be asked for my precise definition of where Ms. Braveman stands in the political spectrum, I would say, well, she probably stands a little bit to the left of Genghis Khan. <laughs> probably, I'm not quite sure. Of course, with apologies to Genghis Khan, who after all was a man of stature, he was a monster, but he was a great general, you know. Oh yes, yes he was, he was a very effective general. No, no doubt about that. He's uh, very popular in, in outer Mongolia. But there we are, <laughs> Genghis Khan. But he was, he was a great figure in history. Whereas Ms. Braveman, even in the miserable context of our wretched political class in, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain, is just a pygmy. And they're all pygmies. Every single one of them. From Biden all around the world. Absolute useless elements. In any event, we have this position that uh, we are succeeding and our enemies can't understand it. Why can't they understand it? They, they, they can't understand it. And by the way, I include in this gang not just, not just the left, the lefts, the left reformists, the Stalinists, of course, who are in a terrible crisis. I might deal with that later on. But also all the uh, 57 varieties of sectarian imbeciles who vegetate on, on the periphery of the labor movement of all countries, making a thorough nuisance of themselves. However, you see, all of these people are united on one question. They're all pessimistic. You sp to speak to any of them. They're all thoroughly pessimistic, they're demoralized, they can't see anything positive. In other words, in this moment of the crisis of, of capitalism, these so-called lefts have not got a clue. The events which are really taking place in the real world have passed them by completely. And I would maintain, I would say this, and this is the first reason why you should be a Marxist and a communist, because Marxism and communism allows us to see further than the end of our own nose. It enables us to penetrate deeply beyond the superficial appearance of things and penetrate and understand the deeper processes, the underlying processes and contradictions that are taking place 
in society, silently, perhaps. You know, this is what Trotsky referred to in a, in a brilliant phrase as the molecular process of revolution. That is to say, beneath the apparent surface of tranquility, of quiet, of nothing's happening here. Have you heard that? Oh, nothing ever happens in this country. Where's the strikes? Where's the demonstrations and so on? Yes, but beneath the surface in all countries, without any exception, there is silently maturing a colossal building up of rage, of discontent, of hatred, of bitterness, above all, of frustration everywhere. And this subterranean process, like the subterranean process is taking place beneath the Earth's surface, is looking for a point of reference, looking for a way out. It's now founded, by the way, suddenly, and it's, it's taken the ruling class by surprise, by, they're shocked. It's, it's, it's found a point of reference, a focal point in the terrible events in Gaza, which really are the distilled essence of what Lenin said a long time ago, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. Lenin said the following. Capitalism, he said, capitalism is horror without end. Horror without end, that's what it is. And you see that written very clearly on the pages of every newspaper you care to open at the present time. And this, of course, is bound to have and is having a profound effect on consciousness. But we'll come to that in a moment. As far as these so-called lefts are concerned, of course, they understand precisely precisely nothing. But to be fair, most people, think about it, most people, well, they switch on their television every night, they see these events, they're horrified by, horrified by these events, but they don't understand. You see, that's where this weekend places us in a very privileged position. Comrades and friends, it is an enormous privilege to be alive at this particular moment in human history. It's a great privilege to be in, in the situation where the capitalist system has reached its limits. I'll come to that assertion in, in a moment. But more than that, you know, there was a... You know, the, the Boers are always described, they try to describe revolutions as terrible events, as madness and bad things and barbarous and so Nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. You know, I was once, I, when I was young and handsome and slim, like you guys, a long time ago, and I was studying Russian. I went to, to, to Moscow to study at the State University. I happened to meet an old woman who had been a Bolshevik school teacher. I think she was in the, in the Volga region, I think. And she'd spent 14 years in one of those hellish places, one of Stalin's labor camps. She didn't want to talk about that. She wouldn't talk about it at all. A terrible experience. But then one day, I said, I've forgotten her name. Let's say, what's her name after? Let's say, what her name might be Natasha, Maria, Sierra, whatever. What was it like in the October Revolution? Do you know she's an old woman, wrinkled, old, gray, bent, bitter. And I'll never forget the expression that came over her face. Her eyes lit up. It lit up. She became young again. And she says, oh, you can't imagine. You can't imagine what it was like. The Russian communist president, you'd understand the phrase. Kakoi padyom, she said. Kakoi padyom. What an uplift. Padyom is a word that suggests to me like a spiritual uplift. What an uplift in the people. And then the next minute the expression faded off her face and she said, not like now. This was in 1970 under Brezhnev, not like now. That little is showed me what a revolution is. And here's another example from this country. You heard of the great poet, the great English poet Wordsworth, William Wordsworth. As a young man, he went to France. I don't know if you know that. Fact, at the time of the French Revolution. I think it was in 1792. He wrote his great work, The Prelude. And the sections of that poet, that marvelous poem, 
that deals with the French Revolution contains a marvelous phrase, and it, it is this. Blessed was in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. William Wordsworth. That, my friends, is what a revolution is. And that potential is contained in the present situation. Amid, amid, amidst all the barbarism and the suffering, how much more barbaric and suffer, barbarism and suffering do you want than what the Russians had to put up with during the First World War and afterwards? And yet out of all that came this tremendous spiritual uplift. That's what a revolution is. Never forget. I'll come back to this question later. I'll come to this question of consciousness later. The benefit of our organization, of our international, because we are an international first and foremost, that we've been able to detect this undercurrent, this potential, this embryonic revolutionary consciousness, which is present and is developing. It finds its clearest expression among the youth. I'll deal with that in a moment, but it is there. And yet all these ladies and gentlemen who like to call themselves Marxists, communists, even Trotskyists, I don't know why, are blind. It reminds me of what communists know that I like, I like to quote the Bible. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you read the Bible? Hands up, hands up all of you that read the Bible. Oh, bless you, my children. <laughs> oh, there's some intelligent people present. I've read the Bible, all of it. From start to finish it. And I tell you, it's full of wonderful poetry and uh, philosophy and interesting insights and so on into human nature and so on. And there's marvelous phrases which I'd like to quote. And here's one of them. Eyes have they, but they do not see. Matya then Eyes have they, but they do not see. That's, and that sums them up. That, that one sentence sums up all of these hopeless, blind empirics who go around strutting around like peacocks and calling themselves Marxists and revolutionaries, and they don't excuse a Welsh expression. Do you know the Welsh language? Can I say something in Welsh? Okay. Swansea expression. Swansea dialect. They don't know their arsehole from their elbow. <laughs> That's good Welsh. And I meant every word of it. So there we are. They, they, they can't see. But you see, even ordinary people can't see. Ordinary. And that's why people suffer. People suffer because they don't know. Not, not so much because of the crisis itself. That's bad enough. They don't know why. Why is this happening? They can't understand it. You know. The, the ancient Greeks had a saying. Those who the gods wish to destroy, they first make them mad. And anyone that looks at any ordinary person that looks at what's happening in the world, in Gaza, anywhere, can only come to one conclusion, the world has gone mad. This is madness. We want it to stop. You know something? They're not entirely wrong. This statement is not entirely wrong. There is madness. Oh, yes. There is madness, extreme madness. But it's not normal madness. This madness is not the madness of individuals, of Horrible people, this, that, and the other. It's the madness of a system, of a socio-economic system that has reached its limits, cannot develop any further, and is now in the process of terminal decline. Now, you see, this statement might sound a bit extreme, but no, no, no. If you look at history, if you care to look at history scientifically, not the post not like the postmodernist imbeciles for whom history has got no meaning at all. That's, a, that's, if you think about it, that's a monstrous thing to say. It's a crazy thing. That is a crazy thing to say. For goodness sake, think for a moment, you know, think what Trotsky said. When all else is lost, when you really have no other alternative, start to think. It's not a bad thing to do. Start to think, you know. And, um, if you think about it, 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 it the, the, the whole idea that history has no meaning, it's just a string of accidents, and so because it's all individuals doing their own thing and so on. Can't got it's, there's no lawfulness to it. That's what they that's what they teach the unfortunate students of history. Are there any history students present? Put your hand up. 
They're, not, they're ashamed to admit it. There's one or two courageous people that went like this. I saw you. Well, I tell you what, my heart bleeds for you. And it bleeds for the philosophy students even more. I mean, what a stupid thing to study in university. Good God. Come on, own up, own up. How many philosophy students are present? Put your hand up. Nobody owns up. I don't believe you. No, 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 no. No, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a monster. Thing. Oh, no, there's no logic there. Now, let's, let's just think for a moment. Look, all of science informs us, okay, that everything in the universe, okay, from the largest gal galaxies to the tiniest subatomic particle are governed by laws for Jesus Christ's sake. It's a government, it's ABC. Is this not true? Of course it's true. Yeah, everything, everything under the, except for us. Except for human beings. We, we not, no, we can't be too important, you see. We, we can't be reduced to cold logic and stuff like that. No, no. Our history means nothing. On the contrary, anyone that's got the slightest knowledge of human history can see immediately patterns emerge. Definite patterns emerge. And you can see clearly that what we, what is occurring now is not something new. It's not something that ought to surprise anybody. Every single socioeconomic system in history is born, develops, flourishes, then it reaches its utmost point of development and ends into an irreversible process of decline. Okay? Which isn't necessarily a straight line, but the, that's the general, general development. And from that process of decline, no escape is possible. You know, and therefore that's why we say we assert it bluntly and without any uh, without any uh, qualifications. The downfall of capitalism, my friends, is absolutely inevitable. It is an historical inevitability. Nothing can stop it. Nothing whatsoever. They do what they like. Can't can't be stopped. They're now past that stage. They might delay it, but they can't stop it. And the longer that that process of dying is con continued, the worse things will be for the planet and for the human race. Terrible suffering. The capitalist system now, it resembles one of these monsters from kids' fairy stories, uh, Russian, Russian fairy stories in particular, or also German fairy stories, of a, a horrible uh, creature, a monster, that's dying on its feet, that's falling to pieces, that's morbid, that stinks, and so on, and yet clings desperately to life and will always live until, of course, some ways and means, magical means, is found to put, put an end to it. That's the capitalist system. That's precisely what has occurred. It is a monster that ought to have been killed a long time ago, ought to have died a long time ago. But by prolonging the, its, its rotten existence, it is poisoning the entire uh, fabric of civilization, of culture, of life, of life itself. It's destroying the pl planet. That's true, perfectly true. The, uh, of course, our friends, the uh, environmentalists, the petty bourgeois environmentalists, they complain about the, the planet being destroyed. They're quite right to draw attention to it. But the trouble with all these petty bourgeois groups, the feminists, the ecologists, the pacifists, they're only capable of, of pointing to symptoms. That's all. None of them ever point to the cause, to the, fun, to the disease itself. It's only symptoms. And you can't solve the problem by dealing with symptoms. You must deal with the root cause, or it will never be solved. They, some of these idiots, these petty bourgeois types, they say, oh, no, it's, all the problem is uh, there's too much growth. You heard that one? Too much economic growth. Too much economic growth. Well, it's only economic growth that can build houses and put food on the table that can give people clothes on their back and give people an education and culture and, and health and so on and so forth. Oh, no, 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 no. This, these people stand up, typical of the petty bourgeois, who understand nothing. They stand the truth on its head. It is not economic, it's not the lack of economic growth that cause, or the excess of economic growth that causes the destruction of the, of the, of the environment. It's the rape of the planet 
by a handful of irresponsible giant monopolies and banks that are only interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's the profit. The obscene profits which they're deriving out of the suffering of the majority of the human race. I've got the figures here somewhere. If I can find them, I will give them to you. About the inequality in the world, which is absolutely without precedent, by the way. I think speaking from memory, I better not speak from memory, but uh, I've, got the, I've, got, I've got the figures here, better than memory. But you see, the two-thirds of all the wealth that was created since the year 2020, two-thirds of it is in the hands of the 1% of obscenely rich families and individuals. That's it, you know. And that is vastly more, I think it's twice as much, twice as much wealth that's in the hands of 99% of humanity. I think it's 85 million people are dying of starvation every year. They don't need a limit of growth. They need an expansion of growth. Yes, but it's got to be growth in the, in the interest of the majority. And that can only be achieved by the abolition, by the overthrow of the dictatorship of the bankers and capitalists, the overthrow of the giant monopolies, and the replacement of this anarchic system of uh, necessarily implies the destruction of the planet by a rational, harmonious, planned economy, democratically controlled with the participation and control of the working people in the interest of the majority for the satisfaction of the needs. That's socialism, if you like. The satisfaction of the, its production for the satisfaction of the needs of the majority and not for the profits of the minority. That's a, that's a brief definition, but we'll come to that. we we'll come back to the question of economic growth at a later date. Now, where, where was I? You see, we've, had, we've been through a situation now of crisis since, what, 2008? It's the, sa the same crisis, actually, that's continued. They've never, they've never got out of it, and they will not get out of this crisis. They can't. They're powerless to get out of it. But see, this period the, did see big movements, as a matter of fact. You see, if you think, oh, well, yes, you can say, well, there was a crisis, but where's the revolution? Good question. Where's the revolution? Well, there is no revolution. What there has been, undoubtedly, is an enormous development of consciousness. This molecular process of revolution to which I have referred. And yes, there have been big movements. There was a revolutionary movement, for example, in Sri Lanka, not long ago, which could have taken power. If it didn't take power, it was only for one reason. And that was the absence of a revolutionary party like the Bolshevik party of Lenin and Trotsky in 1917. There've been similar movements, you know, but I'll come to that in a moment. There have been movements, but if it, put it this way, in the advanced capitalist countries, the first expression of this development of consciousness after the crisis of 2008 was the emergence in one country after another of what I would refer to as left reformist tendencies or, to put it more accurately, of a series of political leaders who spoke in very radical language, at least that, at least that. For example, I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders in the USA. There was a huge movement, people forget that, a huge movement of hundreds of thousands, particularly young people, in support of Bernie Sanders, who made some very uh, radical uh, language. Yeah, that's true. Or Tsipras in Greece, Syriza in Greece, similar situation. Or Podemos in Spain, Pablo Iglesias. I met Pablo Iglesias in Caracas a few years before that. He knew me. I didn't know him at that, at that time. But uh, he struck me as being fairly sincere, but hopelessly confused, which he was, undoubtedly. And, of course, why not in Britain? Jeremy Corbyn, you remember him? Hands up those who remember about Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, quite a few of you, there we are. You know what he's doing now? 
He's writing books of poems. And I wish him success. Plus, he'd be more successful with his poetry than what he was with his politics. Now, you see, put it this way. I don't wish to disparage any of these individuals personally. Personally, I'm convinced that they're very sincere people. They mean well. They don't beat their wife. They don't swear. They probably don't drink. They don't kick the cat. They help old people to cross the roads and so on. Yeah, but when it comes down to it, there's a problem with left reformism. Okay, they always surrender. They never carry out the strike to the end, never. Now, the question is, why is that? Take all the, exa all the examples I've given, all the examples, the hopes of the, of the mass of people were raised, were, were raised to the skies. Think of the enthusiasm that met Jeremy Corbyn in this country. For goodness sake, I'll give you an example, which is very graphic. You know the Glastonbury Festival? Yes? No? I feel like a schoolmaster here. Hands up all those that have heard of the Glastonbury Festival. You've heard of it. Some, some have, some haven't. Well, there you are. Well, it, how, it's like a kind of mass hysteria and madness of a mixture of the crazed petty bourgeois and the lumpen proletariat. <laughs> oh, they're, no, they're, they're actually not true. They're nice kids, actually. They're young kids. They're young kids. They're young kids. Going there to enjoy music and get thoroughly soaked in the British weather and above all covered in mud. You must get covered in mud. If you're not covered in mud, you haven't been there, right? Okay. This is the glass. <laughs> but I mean, this is all, it's, all been a, it's a big thing. It's huge. It's massive. Okay, and it's never had a political leader invited to speak to it, except this once. The organizer invited Jeremy Corbyn to come and address to this mass of young people in Glasgow, and he was received ecstatically by these young kids, covered in mud as they were, you know, long hair, and well, I better not say, better not say anything about long hair. <laughs> anyway, these hippies and so on. <laughs> I don't know how to describe them. Anyway, like I said, no, no, I, I don't, I'm not. I'm serious now. Good, good young kids, you know, just come to listen to the music. They were bowled over. Why? Because he was arousing in them. No, that's wrong. He was he, he was he was addressing himself, and he linked, he connected with a mood that already existed in their hearts and souls, and that mood is this. We're fed up with this society. We've had enough. We need a change. We need a fundamental change. We need a revolution. That was in their mind. And he, he, he appealed to this, perhaps unintentionally, but he appealed to it. And he could have done a lot. I won't go into that because it would take too much time. Suffice it to say, at the end of the day, he surrendered to the right-wing gangsters in the parliamentary labor budget, to the right-wing reformists. And that's always the case, always, not sometimes. It's always the case with left reformists. Now, why is this? Of course, we cannot pardon them for their individual weakness and cowardice, if you like, like to be a little bit hard, hard, that they surrendered. Yeah, but that's not really the point. What we're dealing here is not individual psychology. Not, not people who are individually weak or individually uh, cow cowardly and so on. That's not what we're dealing with. No, this weakness and cowardice is inherent in left reformism. It's inherent. It's part of their, it's buried deep into the DNA of all, even the most left wing of the left reformists. Why is this? Very simple. Because if you look at it closely, what you'll find, in every case, they are, they do not disagree fundamentally with the right-wing reformers. They all accept the existence of the capitalist system. That's the point. Oh, you must be realists, you see. Got to be realistic, my friends. Mustn't be utopian, you know. In other words, you've got to bow your head, bow, bow to the, the dictatorship of the banks, the city of London, and capital. Why? Well, because that's, that's how things are. That's how things are. Just accept it, that's all. And therefore, in the last analysis, they will always surrender. That's why I think it was Trotsky that said that uh, 
betrayal is inherent in reformism. In all reformism, and I would add particularly left reformism, this does not mean to say, let me clarify this, it doesn't mean to say that individuals want to betray and consciously betray. I'm not saying that. I don't think for a moment that any of these people consciously betrayed anybody. But at the last and last, they could not make the break. They could not accept the need for what is necessary. And what is necessary is not to tinker with the capitalist system, but to overthrow the capitalist system. That they can't accept at any, at any price. Now, I'm delighted to see so many young people here today, like myself, young at heart anyway. I'm glad to see so many people. I mean, looking around the room, I see some faces that I recognize. Not many, actually. I've seen some people, some of the older comrades, veterans of 30 years of age and things like that, you know. Yeah, 30s old, by the way. You are laughing, I'll tell you. Now, what Lenin said about that, I'll tell you. Le Lenin said a lot of things. But what I'm particularly pleased about is this, about this gathering, is this. What Lenin said, and this was true of the Bolshevik party in 1917, the young party. He said, he who has the youth has the future. That is absolutely true. By the way, he also said that any revolutionary above the age of 30 ought to be shot. <laughs> I see Adam is quaking in his seat down there. How old are you now, Adam? 38, you've had it. <laughs> no. Calm down, calm down. I see he's trembling. <laughs> calm down. Don't worry. I, I'm quite convinced that Len, he, has, he had a good sense of humor, Len, and he was cracking a joke. And uh, he didn't mean, he didn't mean, I think he did. <laughs> I think he didn't mean it literally. I'm sure he didn't mean it literally. But what he wanted to emphasize, he was always doing that, Len, and he was, he was right, he emphasizes, emphasizes, emphasizes. And he, sometimes he emphasized a bit too much. What he was emphasizing is the absolute need. We must reach the youth. Which they did in, in Russia. The Mensheviks, you know, used to laugh at the Bolshevik party in 1917. Ah, it's a party of young kids. We got the workers. We got the trade unions, which is true. Who took power? Not the Mensheviks. Not the Mensheviks, no. They had very young kids in the ranks of the Bolshevik party. 14 years of age. That's, that's the kind of people that we should be looking Looking for, but this is it. The youth is the future, because they open to revolutionary days. Now let's come back to the, my opening remarks. You see, all these other guys—they—they—they—they—they they, they, they they understand nothing. By the way, I hope they haven't come to this meeting because we don't really want to teach them anything. You know, we don't teach them anything. No, it's not. It's not they're incapable of learning anyway, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. They never will learn. But um, the question is this that this last period, how do we sum it up? This period, yes, from 2008 to the present time. How, how do we characterize this period? I'll tell you what. It's a period, comrades, of preparation. That's what it is. That's what it's been. And it's a period of selection. Okay? These people who went through the school of Corbyn, of Tsipras, of Podemos, and so on, they learned lessons the hard way. They learned lessons. And what, what has happened in this period? The, you see, Trotsky made the point in a marvelous book, which you should all read, as well as the Bible. You should read this marvelous gold mine, this classic of Marxist theory. And a very readable book also. You know, it reads like a novel. Trotsky was a brilliant writer. The History of the Russian Revolution in three volumes. Read it. Read it. It's, it's an amazing book. It really is amazing. It will change your life if you haven't read it. But Trotsky, in this book, he explains that part of the process of revolution, and revolution is a process. It's not a one-act drama. It's a process. The Russian Revolution is, 17 was a process. Okay. But uh, it's characterized, he said, by the rise and fall 
of political parties and leaders and their programs, in which she said that the less radical is always replaced by the more radical in the course of a revolution. That's true. Now, what you see now, you see, is, is this. You see it in elections. And by the way, in elections, yes, you see swings, enormous swings in elections, in France, in Italy, and so on. In Britain, too, you'll see in the next day, enormous swings. Yeah. From, from the left to the right, and from the right to the left. It's true. And whenever, they, whenever there's a swing to the right, they, the sex always run around clutching their heads. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, fascism and so on. Trump and this, oh, Trump is he's a fascist. Oh, you know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, well, let, let them alone with their little games. It's part of the process, for Christ's sake. It's inevitable. What these swings represent is an enormous political instability. That's a symptom of the crisis, for goodness sake. And it's, it's new. This is new. You never had that kind of... Look, you, are not, you might not believe this. You are now sitting in a hall in the capital city of the country, which until very recently was considered to be the most stable political country in Europe. You know? The United Kingdom of Great Britain, ruled by his majestic majesty now, otherwise known to his friends as Big Ears, you know, Charlie, Charlie Boy, and so on. Uh, these, these characters. But in any case, no, it's, it's true, Britain was stable. It was stable for a long time. And the, the, the key to that stability was the alternation between the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, and the Conservative Party was not too bad. The Labour Party was not too left-wing. It was similar to the Tory Party, and so they were just alternate. Same in America, Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republicans for, for donkey's years. Not anymore. Look at the terrible crisis in Britain. Look at the crisis of the Tory Party. Look at the crisis in the States. The, the, the terrible crisis between the Republicans and Democrats and within the Republicans, split down the middle, unprecedented. And since when has it ever been known, outside of the Civil War, that is, that a huge group of, of, of furious demonstrators just stormed the, the Capitol, which they did. That was a warning, of course, that was an incident. But all these things reflect what? A tremendous underlying instability. And by God, the ruling class is terrified. They are terrified. They and they're losing control. Look at the position in the Middle East. Look at the position in Gaza. You, the Americans controlled, or they thought they controlled, Israel. Good God, they put, put in enough trillions of dollars into it over the years. You'd think they'd have some leverage. And yet Netanyahu does what he likes. Blinking, winking, blinking, and nod. Blinking turns up. The Arabs wouldn't speak to him. He was supposed to have a meeting in Jordan. They said, no, no, thanks, bugger off. So he went to, went to see, speak to the Israelis. He said, no, listen, guy, listen guys, uh, look, we know you're going to massacre a few thousand people, but uh, be gentle about it, like, you know. Be humanitarian when you massacre people, for goodness sake. You know, this kind of stuff. And that in the Arab turned around and said, fuck off. <laughs> In, in, in plain language, that's what he did. He did. In so many, I mean, this this is this is unknown. This, then Blinken, then he's got this. He said, "Well, look, how about not a ceasefire? How about a little pause? It could be five minutes or what? Five little pause." And the says, "No, get stuffed. Bug it off. You're not. Have, we're not. You're not on. Go away." And with this refusal ringing in his ears, he then goes to speak to the Arab leaders, to the other pawns, the other agents, Jordan, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And what do they say? Hey, 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 look, you're you. Ceasefire. Straight away. Because they're terrified. They're terrified of their own people. When we put the forward the slogan of an intifada, that's not just directed, it's directed against the Arab leaders. And that's on the cards. They're terrified. This is undermining them. So what, are, what, what do they say to Blinken? Oh, well, how about the pause? They say in Arabic, F off, same thing. <laughs> Get stuffed. You know, you're not having it. They can't. So therefore, this is, this is, I mean, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be a bit funny, I suppose. 
But the, the, the serious point is this. What this shows clearly, anyone with eyes to see, U.S. imperialism has completely lost control of what was their main area of interest, the Middle East. The splits, by the way, in, in the administration has not been made public, but it exists, I'm telling you. There was a, a secret memorandum from the, a faction, must be an important faction, in the uh, State Department has been circulating, denouncing Blinken, denouncing the government, denouncing American foreign policy in the Middle East, which is a disaster. It is a disaster from the standpoint of imperialism, but they can't help it. And what really terrifies all of them is precisely the radicalizing effect that this terrible bloodshed is having throughout the whole world, particularly in the Arab states. And watch this space. You ain't seen nothing yet in the Arab world. I'm telling you, revolutionary potential is there. But in all countries, it's mass demonstrations in London, in Washington, in Tokyo, in Rome, in everywhere, everywhere you look. Now, this in part, of course, it reflects the, the, the fury of people and the indignation of people and the, the repulsion of people for this atrocity which is taking place. That's true. But isn't it something more than that? I think so. I think so. What the people are looking for is a focal point to express all the contented, the accumulated discontent, rage, fury, frustration. It's reflected in this. And that shows that the whole system is, is very shaky now. Now, to come back to the earlier point, the, the masses have been through the school of left reformism and they've, it's come out a gigantic zero. I don't think they'll go down that road very easily. They may well do so. I don't want to be too hasty on that point. But above all, what is significant for us, what we, what we detected, that's the reason for this campaign, is a whole layer of the most advanced elements, mainly the youth, not entirely, but mainly the youth, have now swung sharply in to the left. They've, they've said, They've, they've, seen through the, they've been through the business of left reforms, but they don't want to know. Even to the extent some of them don't want to know they're with socialism. Oh, no, I'm not a socialist, I'm a communist. Because, why? Well, because socialism is like Bernie Sanders, it's like Jeremy Corbyn, people like that. It's not good enough. No, no, no. This new generation wants communism. They want revolution and they don't want anything less than that. They only want the, the genuine item. And therefore, our tendency, because we detected this, wasn't an accident, we didn't stumble across this, not an accident. We are now in the right place at the right time and we are getting the benefit from it, which is very, a very good thing. I've got the, the statistics here. I, I think I have a little time to reply at the end, will I? If the Iron Chairman permits. Yes. Well, when I, when I reply, I'll give the actual figures. But the statistics are there in black and white. Even in, in the States, in the United States of America, I think it's 20% of young people between the, the age of 15 and 30, I think, call themselves communists, not socialists. And by the way, in the States, don't forget, you've had decades Generations of, of the most vicious anti-communist propaganda. These right-wing Republicans, they even consider Biden to be a communist. There we are. What do you think of that? Oh, yeah. Even a, a, a milk and water proposal like health, free health, like the NHS. No, 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 that's communism. That's communism. <laughs> With apologies to my American, my American friends. My appalling accent. But you know, you know what I meant. I mean, and therefore, 20%, that's millions. My math is not very good. Someone will tell me how many. It's millions and millions of young people. And by the way, from places like Arizona, Texas, and so on, we get in reports of people that are joining our organization right now. Why? Because we are offering them something which they were looking for. That's a fact. And you've got to do that in all countries. Don't be bashful. Don't be excessively modest in your aims. In this situation, it calls for boldness. 
the words of the great French revolutionary Danton, de l'audace, de l'audace, encore de l'audace, boldness, boldness, and still more boldness. That's what's required. And therefore, I think that we're on the right track. Now, I don't think I've got much time left, have I? Five, five measly minutes. How time flies when you're enjoying yourself. Einstein said that time is relative, but it's not my experience. Anyway, how do we sum up? Let's ask ourselves a fundamental question. Why are we communists? That's the question. What are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? By the way, I want to make one thing absolutely clear here. As communists, as revolutionaries, we are fundamentally opposed to reformism. We're against it, okay? Yes, but that's often distorted. It's often twisted maliciously to imply, oh, you're not interested in reforms, then you're only interested in, in bloody revolution. On the contrary, on the contrary. You read the Communist Manifesto, perhaps if, I, if I've got time in the summing up, I'll quote what, what Marx said about what is a communist. Communists must be in the forefront of the struggle for every, each and every reform, each and every demand, insofar as it means an improvement of the, of the, of the conditions of the working class and the masses. Of course, we should be the boldest advocate of reforms, the most energetic participants in strikes and so on and so forth for economic demands. Of course, of course. Our difference with the reformers is not that they fight for reforms. On the contrary, our difference with the reformers, our criticism of the reformers is that they don't fight for reforms. They never have fought for reforms. On the contrary, they always try to be moderate to avoid conflict, to avoid strikes, to avoid violence and so on, all the rest. No, no, no. If there's a strike, they, they'll hasten to do a deal as quickly as possible with the employers and so on and so forth. In order to get what they're basically looking for, which is not reforms, certainly not revolution, what they're basically looking for is a quiet life. And that's what the trade union officials, the reformist trade union officials, but they want a quiet life. Unfortunately, if they wanted a quiet life now, they've been born at the wrong time. There ain't no quiet life now for anybody, for any of us. On the contrary, we have entered into the most stormy period in history. Get your heads around that. And certain things flow from that. Certain things definitely flow from that. But what, what are we aiming for? Uh, yes, of course, we'll fight for homes and jobs and better wages and so on. Of course, we fight for all this. We fight for a living wage and a job for everybody. Yeah, yeah, but that is not our aim. That's not the end. These things are only the, the means to an end. The socialist revolution only really begins after those things have been achieved. And they, by the way, now they should be easily achieved. Easily achieved. Some people say, well, it's utopian. By the way, a word to our young comrades, a word of advice. Now, I don't know hardly any of the young comrades in this room. We've never met before. I've never been in your home. And yet, you know, I'll tell you something that might surprise you. I know exactly what will happen tonight when you go, when you go home or when you go home. I know the conversation that will take place with mom and dad. I know just what they're going to say. You say, oh, we've just been to this marvelous conference and this nice Alan Woods was speaking and he made a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, and uh, I, I think I'm a communist and so on. And then he asked me, no, 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 no. Don't, don't say that. No, 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 don't, don't do this. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. Please don't waste your life. Look, when I was your age, I had those ideas or similar ideas, but I've got older and wiser and I worked and I've understood, I've understood some things that it's, it's all nonsense. It's completely utopian. You cannot change the world. You can't change the world because you can't change human nature. And therefore, forget about communism, forget about revolution. Go and do your studies, get a nice job, put on a nice suit or a nice dress and and live a nice, comfortable bourgeois existence like me. Yeah? Is that right? Yeah? yeah? yeah. Am I right or am I right? Yes. I can't hear you. Am I right or am I right? Yes. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. No, I'm right. 
But the question is this, look, how many times have we heard this stuff? How many times have you heard this stuff? Now look, let's, it's a simple answer. The answer is this, you know. Why do you say that it's impossible to change the world? Why do you say this? You know. Are you telling me that the human race, with all its combined abilities and consciousness and learning, is not capable of, of having a better social system than this? Is that what you're saying? I would say that that's an affront to the human race. It is an insult to the human race to say that this is the best system that you can get. It's not. This system is condemned. It's finished. And the only question is how long is it going to continue to exist? Because the longer it exists, the more this poisonous system will destroy culture, democracy, the gains of civilization, even the future of life on earth are being put in risk by this criminal system. And therefore, our, our fight is of a fundamental character. It's of a fundamental character. And what are we aiming for? You see, under capitalism, the outlook is bleak. Even when, there, when there's advances, the capitalist system turns these advance, advances into gigantic negatives. Example, look at this big debate taking place now on... Uh, Artificial intelligence, okay? Now I think, looking at it logically, this new technology is not something we should be afraid of. It should really logically, rationally, represent a gigantic step forward, freeing human beings from the slavery of work, of labor. You know, they're saying that this system could actually it could they say it could abolish labor. I think that's false. You will never completely abolish labor. Labor will always be a component. What it can and should do is reduce the hours of work to a very tiny proportion. Okay? And what that means, this is the important point to grasp, that's the material premise for communism. That's the material premise for a higher society where men and women for the first time in 10,000 years are freed from the slavery of work, of labor. You know, Aristotle, the great, one of the great thinkers, he actually said in his metaphysics, he said the following. Man begins to philosophize. He used to use man because he didn't speak about women. He means human beings. It doesn't matter. Man begins to philosophize. That's it, to think big ideas and so on. Man begins to philosophize, he said, when the necessities of life are provided. Consequently, he added, uh, geology and astronomy were discovered in Egypt because the priest did not have to work. That's in Aristotle's metaphysics. Two and a half thousand years before Karl Marx, a profoundly materialist idea, which explains the whole of history, you know. One last word. You know, I think sometimes Columbus, we to make a self-criticism of ourselves. Sometimes we're very clever people. We think we know what we're doing and so on. Sometimes I feel we don't show sufficient imagination. You know, think. I mean, there's a song, a song by John Lennon. It is a bit utopian, you know. Imagine it's called, you know. Yeah, but you've got to give it to the man. And he was quite progressive. That's why he was killed, I think. But then, no, yeah, seriously, seriously, seriously. But anyway, imagine what this means. We're, we're under a rationalized, a rational planned economy, you know, freed from the dictatorship of the bankers and capitalists. It'd be possible to make all this technology work for people, work to solve all the problems. All this, it's not utopian for Christ's sake. There's nothing utopian about it. It's, it's, it's a fact. It's the, the, the actual material possibilities are present now, not in the distant future. Now, right now, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. If this technology were put to, to work in a proper way for the benefit of, of people. One final word. I don't know if you know this. Out of all the Marxist literature, there's a little known text. It's not by Marx or Engels. It's by Marx's son-in-law. Paul Lafargue, Frenchman, interesting title. He wrote a book called The Right to be Lazy. 
Never heard of that right? You heard of the right to work, the right to have a house, the right to, to live even. You never heard that. The right to be lazy. The right to have all the spare time which you require to develop yourself as a human being. To develop yourself physically, intellectually, spiritually, if you like, you know. What social, what genuine communism means for the first time in history is that the road to culture, which has been barred to the masses for 10,000 years, will be flung open for the first time. The doors will be open for the majority of people to acquire culture. That means, therefore, to acquire the ability to run society in the first instance and to command their own lives and to develop themselves, as I say, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And therefore, to raise the human race, to raise men and women, to raise the human race to a higher level than what's ever been dreamt of in the whole of human history. That is what we're aiming for, comments. That is why we are communists. That is why we are fighting for the only cause which is worth fighting for at this <clears throat> dramatic stage in human history. Comrades, I'm sure that this Rev Festival will be an, an enormous contribution to this revolutionary task of ours. And therefore, let us combine and work together to ensure that it's the best event ever. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Marxist Voice. Thanks very much to our listeners for tuning in. But before you go, we'd like to make a few quick announcements. As our listeners have already heard, there are now plans in place to relaunch the Socialist Appeal newspaper as The Communist starting from January the 24th next year. This isn't going to be simply a change of name, it's going to be a brand new paper, a tool in the hands of communist activists across the country fighting for Marxist ideas in the movement. So if you want to help us get communist ideas out in the open, then we urge you to support us financially by taking out a subscription to our newspaper. Prices start from only £3.50 a month, and all existing subscriptions to Socialist Appeal will be renewed when The Communist is launched in January. What's more, we also want to make The Communist a genuine workers' paper, a voice for the working class. And that means that we need more correspondence, more letters, more reports from strikes, demonstrations and workplaces, and so on. So if you'd like to help us produce the communist newspaper and make it into a genuine voice for the working class, then please send in any submissions of up to 400 words to newsdesk at socialist.net. Finally, as always, if you agree with the ideas and analysis put forward in the Marxist Voice podcast and you want to get organized in the fight for socialist revolution, then we urge you to join the communists. Whether you're here in Britain or anywhere across the world, you need to get organized in the international Marxist tendency. If you head to the show notes in this podcast, you'll find a link to our application form where you can sign up and a member of the IMT will be in touch with you as soon as possible. So we'll end it there. Thanks very much once again for tuning in and make sure you stay tuned for a second episode this week on the history of the Palestinian struggle and the fight for a free Palestine today. Brought to you by Marxist Voice, the podcast of the IMT in Britain. <laughs>